0: Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Good morning. So if you guys have been with us throughout the fall, we've been in this series, uh, Redemption Through History. And what that's looked like is basically, we've been on a journey. We've been on a journey with God and his people. And if you remember way back early in this journey, we encountered a man named Abraham. And so when we met Abraham, God made Abraham a promise. He promised him a son, and then through that son, a nation. And then he didn't only promise him a nation, he said, you know what, I promise you a land for that nation too. So God promised Abraham a nation and a land. And over the last few weeks, we've seen how God came through on both of those promises. First off, God's people grew into a nation while they were in slavery in Egypt. And then God led his people out of Egypt and brought them through the wilderness to a promised land. And a couple weeks ago, we saw that finally happen. God's people crossed the Jordan River and entered the promised land. And so now, when they entered that land, God gave them a command. He said, Destroy everything. So his exact words were actually, You must devote them to complete destruction. This was going to be a fresh start for God's people. But if you were with us over the summer, you know that they did not obey this command. And that did not go well for them. Their their disobedience actually haunted them. And they started down this slippery slope, drifting further and further away from God and what God wanted for them. And so we actually went through these cycles. You guys may remember these cycles over the summer. And what it looked like is the people would rebel. They would say, you know what? We know what's best for us. God doesn't, and so we're going to go our own way. And then God would give them over to the rebellion. God would be angry with them, and then He would give them over to the rebellion, and they would be oppressed by their enemies. And then, after this period of oppression, they would cry out for help, and there would be this repentance. And then God would raise up a judge, and He would rescue them. And then, after God rescued them, there there would be a period of peace and rest in the land. But then that judge would die, and then this cycle would start again, and we went through it over and over again. And that is actually where we pick it up today, all right? We're gonna be in 1 Samuel chapter seven, and we're gonna look at one of the last judges, and that is Samuel. And as we go through today, uh, we're actually gonna go through like three movements or three acts, there's kind of three acts in this story. It's gonna be the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right? But we're gonna start with the good. So, so we'll start strong. So, and that's where we pick it up again in chapter seven, the good. So just to set it up, Samuel is now the judge of Israel. And in these cycles, you know, the people have rebelled and they're being oppressed by their enemy. And their enemy in this case is the Philistines. And right now they are considering this repentance phase. And so Samuel comes to them, and he says, you know, are, are you going to repent? So he meets with the people, and that's where we pick it up in verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines." So what do they do? So the people put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. So they decide to repent. And then after they make this decision, it is actually, it's immediately put to the test. The Philistines are preparing to attack Israel and Israel has a choice to make. Are we gonna trust in God or are we gonna go back to these foreign gods? Or are we just gonna trust ourselves? And so we we see the response in verse seven. It says, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So they are afraid, and what do they do? They put their trust in God. They ask Samuel to pray for them. Don't stop praying for us. So the battle is coming. The Philistines are coming. And there are lots of things they could do right now. You know, get some weapons. Uh, get the troops ready. Let's, let's prepare for battle. But what do they do? They pray. And, you know, for me, that simple act of prayer, that simple act of obedience is a lot of times difficult. You know, I I face an obstacle, maybe big, maybe small. And what I want to do is just see the obstacle and fix it myself. But what God says is, look to me. You can count on me. I want to be your help. And that's what we see here in this story. Uh, In verse 9, And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered them. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, The Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. And this is beautiful. This is good. Like this is the way it's supposed to be. The people trust God and God gives them the victory. And so if you're the people of Israel, if you are Samuel, this is a sweet victory, and you want to celebrate. So what do they do? They memorialize it with a stone. You know, maybe different than what we do. But, but they take a stone, and it is Ebenezer. We, we sang about it earlier, this stone Ebenezer. And when we say, here I raise my Ebenezer, Ebenezer literally means stone of help. So what they're saying is, we didn't have a chance The Philistines are stronger than us. We could not defeat them, but we have this stone of help, and that is the Lord, and he won the battle. And so, looking back at this first act, this good, there are two keys to this victory for Israel. And they're actually going to keep showing up in these other two acts as well. First, Israel saw the Lord as their help. They looked to the Lord only. Instead of looking at the Philistines and the strength of that army, or instead of looking at themselves and their own weakness, all they see is the Lord and nothing else matters. And we'll call that key clear eyes. Second key, they served the Lord. You remember, they put away their false gods and they served the Lord only with all their heart and we'll call this key full hearts and so in the end the lord provided the victory and so i don't know if if those keys sound familiar to any of you out there uh but there is a there was a show on tv uh called friday night lights see yes if you think i stole this i definitely did steal that yes uh so this is it. You know, it's about this football team, a high school football team in Texas. And uh, before every game, they had this, like, battle cry. And it was clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. And um, so, I mean, I guess I stole this from them, but I think they kind of stole it from the Bible first. So, so what we'll see today is uh, what this really means. Clear eyes, look to the Lord only. Full hearts, serve the Lord with your full heart and can't lose. God is on our side. He will provide the victory. So again, a sweet victory. I would love to say, you know, everything goes great from there. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, But it doesn't end there. Unfortunately, what starts next is a series of events that will actually lead to a tragic ending. And so that brings us to the second act. Act one is over, we move on to the bad. And we'll pick that up in chapter eight. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him behold you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations but the thing displeased Samuel when they said give us a king to judge us and Samuel prayed to the Lord so what we see here is is Samuel's like okay you can call me old and, and you, can, you can talk bad about my kids, but you cannot go against the Lord and ask for a king. He is your king. It, it hasn't been that far from this good, sweet victory. It's like Samuel is saying, remember, Ebenezer, you know, the Lord is our help. The Lord is our king. And so he pleads with the people, but the people come back and they say, no. We want what we want. We know better. We want a king. And so Samuel takes this request to God. And then we see God's response. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So, the people get their wish. They reject their true king for a human king. And then in chapter 9, we get to meet this human king that they wanted. In verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of becherath son of Athia, A Benjaminite. So, what is this man like? He is a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So, the people decide you know, Samuel is old, his sons are crooked, we want this guy. We want the wealthy, handsome, young, strong man, and Saul becomes their king. And so meanwhile, Samuel has this last chance. So Samuel meets with the people and he has this farewell address. It's it's this one last speech that he gives to the people to try to turn their hearts. And it's like he's saying, okay, you have a human king. That's fine. But remember who your true king is. The Lord is still your king. The Lord is still your help. And so we'll look at this speech in chapter 12. First Samuel comes to the people, or Samuel comes to the people, and the way he starts this speech is he wants to point to what the Lord has done for them. In verse 7, it says, Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. And then Samuel reminds them of all the things the Lord has done for them. The Lord, he led you out of Egypt. The Lord brought you to the promised land. He gave you victory after victory in the promised land. Remember the Lord. And then in verse 14, he says, If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. He is saying, trust the Lord and it will go well. Trust yourself and you will be empty. It will not go well. And he knows that there's going to be ups and downs. And so he wants to remind the people, you know, in the midst of your ups and downs, God is constant. The Lord is the same. He says, for the Lord will not forsake his people. And then finally, Samuel brings it home here in in verse 24. It's his closing statement of this plea to the people. He says, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. He says, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. So Samuel is getting back to those keys to victory that we saw in that first act in the good. He says, fear the Lord. See the Lord only with clear eyes. Serve him faithfully. Trust and follow him alone with a full heart. Remember, God is on our side. We can't lose. And so Samuel just lays his heart out on the line. And then in a minute, we'll see. Israel's response. But before we get into that, I want to look at these keys just a little bit closer. And so the first one is fear the Lord. Proverbs nine ten says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So this command to fear the Lord is really a call to know him. Like, see the Lord clearly. Know who he really is. He is a God unlike anything you know, unlike anyone that you encounter, and he is for us. He is our help. So as we look at this, we'll go back. When Moses um, encounters God, he asks God, what he should call him and god responds with this hebrew word yahweh or i am and when we see uh, this appear in the bible we don't see this hebrew word yahweh it's actually the lord in all caps and we see that a lot and whenever we see that it's actually this word yahweh or i am and i and I think it should really make us stop and think about what that means. I am. It's like God is saying, you know, He is the I am, the one and only who has always been. He has no beginning or end. He is the I am, the only perfect holy one. There is no other like Him. He is the I am the creator of life. There is no life outside of him. He satisfies our deepest longings. He meets our deepest needs. He is all we need. And so Israel is saying, you know what? We got this. And I do the same thing. Like, you know what? I got this. I'm good. And then God's response to that is, do you know me? Do you know who I am. Do you really want to do this on your own? And so when we think about that, when we think about who the Lord, who the I am really is, we have to ask ourselves that question. Like, do I really want to handle this on my own? Or do I want to start to trust and listen to the Lord, the I am? And that brings us to the second part of this closing statement for Samuel. Not only, you know, fear the Lord. See the I am with clear eyes. He then says, serve him faithfully. Listen, trust with your full heart. So again, when I want to say, you know, I got this. I'm good. God first asks, do you know me? And then he asks, do you trust me? Do you really believe I know what's best for you and that I am all you need? So that is Samuel's farewell address. Again, he lays it out there. And so what will Israel do? So again, I'd love to say, you know, they come to their senses and they say, you know what? You're right. We're wrong. But that is not the case. Instead, they answer Samuel with a resounding, you know what? Thanks but no thanks, we got this. And so instead of this clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose, we end up seeing this clouded vision, these empty hearts, and this downward spiral. Israel forgets God, and they look to this human king, Saul. And this human king, he forgets God, and he just looks to himself, and again, the way, the way this turns out is just this downward spiral of what it looks like to live for self. And that brings us to the third act, the ugly. Or you can kind of think of it as the heartbreaking. And so we're going to look at the life of Saul. And we're going to look specifically at two scenes in his life. And in each of these scenes, I want you to notice something. Saul, each of these scenes are Saul performing a selfish act of disobedience. And in each scene, the act might seem small to us, but it reveals a big problem in Saul's heart. That Saul is just living for himself. He's so wrapped up in himself that he does not see the Lord. He does not serve the Lord. And what it leads to Is a stubborn and unrepentant rejection of the Lord. And so we'll look at this first scene. So I'll kind of set it up here. We're going to be in chapter 13 and verse 8. But what's happening is the Philistines, you know, they lost that battle earlier. And what they want, they want another shot at Israel. They say, you know what, we're coming back. And so they're mustering up their chariots, they're getting their troops ready. And so Samuel gives Saul some clear instruction from the Lord. He, he, gives him, he says two things. He says, Saul, I will meet you in seven days, and I will offer a sacrifice. So Samuel will meet him, and Samuel will offer a sacrifice. But it's getting close to those seven days being up, and Israel's getting a little bit nervous, and Saul's starting to get a little bit nervous. That brings us to verse eight. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he, Saul, offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And so I think it's important to notice here that it's still the seventh day. You know, Samuel came right on time. But Saul sees the people scattering, and again, he panics. And so Saul goes out to meet Samuel and greet him. And I just got to imagine Samuel walking up, expecting, you know, okay, it's been the seven days. We're going to meet. I'll do the sacrifice. But as he's walking, he sees this smoke. You know, he's, he smells this fire. And, and I got to think he's confused and he's disappointed. And so he approaches Saul and Samuel said, what have you done? Again, he's just confused and he's like, why? Why have you done this? And so, in response to Samuel, you know, he's just been called out on his disobedience. Saul has this great opportunity to come clean and say, you know what? I messed up. I got impatient. I panicked. You know, I should have waited. I should have trusted. But that's not how Saul responds. As we read his response, I want us to notice where Saul is looking, where his eyes are set. And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You see, Saul's eyes are fixed on everything but the Lord. There is no fear of the Lord, no clear eyes where he sees the Lord and everything else fades away. Instead of the fear of the Lord leading to wisdom for Saul, what we see is the fear of everything else leading to foolishness. And Samuel calls him out on it. He says, Saul, you have acted foolishly. So that's the end of our first scene where we kind of zoom in on Saul. And what we see is there is no repentance on the part of Saul. So now we're going to look at another scene, you know, another act of disobedience that gives us a window into Saul's heart and another chance at repentance. And we're going to look at this in chapter 15, and we're going to pick it up in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel and opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. So what, what is he talking about right there? So Amalek, this is a group of people, the Amalekites, and what did they do? So the people of Israel were set free from Egypt, and they were wandering on their way to the promised land, and the Amalekites would pick out the weak And the weary and the vulnerable, the stragglers, kind of in the back of the group, and they would pick them off and kill them. And what the Lord is saying is, I'm not okay with that. And so what does he say? He says, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So this is a command for complete destruction. And this is, we've seen this before. And this this is exactly what the Lord called the people to do when they entered the promised land. So this this is kind of a second chance. He says, destroy everything. So how will Saul respond? We see it in verse 8. And Saul took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. So Saul has this other chance to obey, and he disobeys. He blew it. The command was to destroy everything, and Saul kept back all that was good. He thinks, you know, I, I think I know better than the Lord. I know better than the I am. So here comes Samuel again. You know, his job is to call out Saul on his disobedience. So this time, instead of, you know, seeing the fire, seeing the smoke, smelling the sacrifice, he sees these sheep and oxen all over the place. He's probably having to fight through these animals to get to Saul. Again, this obvious disobedience. And again, Saul has this chance to repent. As Samuel approaches, he can say, you know, I did it again. I should have destroyed everything. And we'll see what he says in uh, verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? So again, Samuel calls Saul out on this disobedience, but Saul does not get it. He ignores Samuel, and instead of repentance, he goes to excuses and defends his actions. And as it turns out, Saul never gets it, and things do not go well for him. He lives a life of torment and restlessness. And it gets to the point that he cannot find rest. He can't sleep. So he has to hire someone to come and play soft music just so he can quiet his mind and get a break and get some rest. And not only that, in the end, Saul takes his own sword and he falls on it to try to quiet the restlessness in his soul. And again, this is... Is heartbreaking. If we think back at this series, you know, the other stories we've looked at, it's been redemption through history. You know, God takes a broken, a messed up human and he redeems them and it is well with their soul. We saw it with Abraham. You know, Abraham is redeemed and it goes well for him. Isaac Jacob, Leah, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Rahab, all redeemed, and it goes well for them. And then we come to Saul. Saul rejects God. He sees everything but God, and he serves himself, and it does not go well for him. Saul... He lived for his own glory, and he died empty. And so what we see is tragic. I mean, this is a heartbreaking story. And before we move on, we have to make sure that Saul's tragic life is not in vain, but that we learn from his mistakes. For me, I know there are sheep bleeding and oxen lowing in my heart. There, there are these little idols or little areas in my life that I don't want messed with. I, I just want to keep them to myself. Or maybe I just want to ignore them and say they don't even exist. Or if I do acknowledge them, I say, you know what? I got this. I can handle it on my own. And the Lord is pleading with me. He's saying, fear the Lord. See me for who I am with clear eyes. He's saying, serve the Lord. You know, fight to trust the Lord with a full heart. He says, devote to complete destruction the things in your life keeping you from him. And he promises it will be worth it. I will give you rest. You can't lose. So Saul's tragic life, Is not only a warning to us, but it also points to a need for our true king. Isaiah describes this true king as very different than Saul. He says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. This king is not wealthy. He's not handsome. He's not strong. Yet what did this king do? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Paul describes this king in Philippians, our true king. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that is a king. A king unlike any other. So we look at Saul. And we see a king who lived for his own glory and he died empty. And then we see Jesus. He emptied himself and was exalted to a glory we could never imagine. And not only that, but he invites us in to that. He says, join me. He invites us into his kingdom and into his glory. He says, let me teach you. Let me show you the way. It's not easy, but it's worth it. And all along the way, I will be your help. In Matthew, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, all the restless, all the weary, And he says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He'll listen to me, spend time with me, trust me, and you will find rest for your souls. He says, take my yoke upon you. And so this is a yoke. And I think this yoke is actually... A beautiful picture of what it looks like to leave this kingdom of self, serving self, and the heaviness that goes with that. And then claiming citizenship in this kingdom of God and serving God and what that looks like. So in Egypt, the people of Israel were in slavery. So they were beaten and they were forced to work, hunched over by these evil Egyptian taskmasters. And then the Lord, I am, set them free. The Lord says, I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. And this is what Saul never understood. It never clicked. Saul lived hunched over, beaten down, restless in his sin, bound to the yoke of self, living for the kingdom of self. But when we see our true king with clear eyes and when we serve our true king with full hearts, Christ breaks that yoke. He breaks the bars of the yoke of sin and self that keep us hunched over and weary and restless, and he makes us walk erect. We are set free to take on the yoke we were made for, a yoke that fits, a yoke we share with Christ. And Christ says, I will do the heavy lifting. Come to me, I will give you rest. So the work of knowing the Lord, knowing I am, trusting in Christ can be hard, but it is good because it is the hard work we were created for, the yoke we were made for. And what Jesus says is we can't lose. Take my yoke upon you and I will give you rest